is a professor in the mathematics of cities. She is a mathematician, a best-selling author, an award-winning science presenter and the host of numerous popular podcasts and television shows. Hannah is known for her joyful ability to bring maths to life for audiences of all interests and abilities. In this much-anticipated episode, Professor Hannah Fry and I explore how we can help all learners feel included and represented. This episode will help promote diversity in our maths classrooms with insights and tools that hopefully you can apply to your own practices. We have so much to get through today, so let's get started. Professor Hannah Fry, what a great joy it is to have you join me today on this episode. I know how busy you are, so thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. The joy is all mine, I can assure you. Well, let's have some, let's have some fun together, joy together. Um, so for any new listeners, um, they wouldn't know, um, but our regular listeners know that I like to start these episodes with an icebreaker. And after our webinar, Diversity in Data, you hinted at your dream job. So I thought, right, I need to pick up on this. So it could be something completely different and you might have changed your mind. But if you're not, do- obviously we're doing our dream jobs, right? We love what we do, but if it was not an option, what would your alternative dream job be? And I want to know why. Okay, so the thing is, is that I actually, I this ends up happening quite often where I'll go into somewhere and I will see other people who are doing my dream job and I'll be just very jealous. Because the thing is, is that, that now my job involves a lot of traveling, a lot of going to talk to incredibly interesting people all around the world, finding out their stories and using, um, you know, the, the, the background that I have and the understanding I have of mathematics to try and translate that for an audience to just help share the love of the subject as much as possible. But, you know, ultimately, when you go into a place like DeepMind, right, or like a place in um, in California where they're building nuclear fusion power plants that are, you know, sort of startups that are doing it. Right. Or, or I don't know, you, you end up going into NASA like, and you see all of these people whose everyday life is where they are properly, totally and completely single mindedly focused on the mathematics that they're doing. And it is absolutely at the limits of what humans can achieve. And I just am so jealous because I think apart from doing my PhD, I never really had that luxury where there was nothing else going on, only the mathematics. And I crave it. And I know that it's really, it's really like, I know it's cheating to say I'd be a mathematician because I am one. <laughs> but I think that there are definitely times where I'm like, oh, you know, if I could have another life, yeah. that's what I would do. But unfortunately, I think that um I think I have to do this one because I think that if I don't I think the craving would be stronger from the other side at Pearson at the moment we're trying to show students that taking maths doesn't mean you your dream is to be a maths teacher (laughs) because that's all they see they just see their maths teacher every day and think I don't want to do maths because I don't want to teach so it's like no the possibilities are endless I, and I think as we go forwards in time, I think that actually there are there are fewer and fewer and fewer jobs that you can do and get away with not doing any yeah, maths at all. Absolutely. And I think that's only going to increase as time goes on. Yeah, 
absolutely as, especially as technology advances mm -hmm. you're going to need maths anyway love it so that's that's reassuring for everybody that you would still choose maths <laughs> i really would i really would okay okay maybe i'd be an engineer but okay cool yeah <laughs> no further away than that no further away than that <laughs> just a little parallel sideline um so i mentioned earlier about the diversity webinar that we did diversity in data and i can't believe it was like last october or something it's just insane how quickly the time goes um but there were some interesting points that you know, you raised um, things that were hilariously uncomfortable, you know, the, the things that that have, you know, both of us have experienced, I guess. Um, and there were some just mind blowing examples like the the nick on camera um, and, you, you know, the, the hand sanitizer where it only recognized white skin and just insane. And, you know, the, the fact that these products can make it to market um, you know, it's gone through all of these design processes and it's still made it to market. So it just blows my mind how this is still happening in society. And obviously we want to talk about some of these diverse conversations today. So uh, here's, here's one of the big questions. This podcast isn't light today. Like, <laughs> what about, why is this happening, Hannah? Like, yeah. why, why do you think this is still going on? Um, and these companies are just, they're just missing it. How are they letting it happen? Well, gosh, okay. So I think that there's, I think when it comes to bias, finding its way into technology in particular, I think that there are essentially three ways that it can happen. I think the first is when, uh, is by deliberate design. And that does happen sometimes, actually. Um, there's a bridge in New York um, that's a really good example of this, a bridge that was built by a guy called Robert Moses. And uh, he, there was a new, nice, swanky beach in Long Beach. Um, Long Beach? No, not Long Beach. Uh, Long Island, sorry. Uh, and he was incredibly racist, and he didn't want um, he didn't want the beach to be open to everyone. But the point in time of this was that he he didn't have that power, and so he deliberately he knew that to get out to this beach, that um, people from the poorer neighbourhoods of New York, um, and particularly black communities from the poorer neighbourhoods of New York, would have to get a bus there. And so he deliberately built a bridge uh, on the only road towards the beach that was too low for a bus to pass through. So it is possible, right? It is. It does happen that sometimes people are deliberately trying to discriminate against one group or another in the way that they design things. But I think that actually more often what happens is that it is a sort of thoughtless omission, really. Um, and I think that that's the case with the Nikon camera. I think that, um, so this is a, a, um, a young woman um, uh, of Asian descent who uh, bought a Nikon camera for Christmas for her mum and was playing around with it. And basically it kept showing up an error message saying, um, uh, you've got your eyes closed, like try again with your eyes open. I mean, it's just so obvious that that technology was never tested on somebody who like has similar facial features right so obvious because if it had been it never would have been released to market and i think that that is part of the reason why um you know these ideas about diversity are so important because unless you have those people sitting around the table unless you have a wide range of worldviews and ethnicities and genders and all of that sitting around the table 
designing these products, making these decisions, then then of course you're going to. I mean, I cannot sit here as a white woman and uh, imagine what the potential implications would be for or, you know people who are fundamentally different from me. Right? I can't do it. There's no way. And that's exactly the point. That's why you have to have everybody in the room. Yeah. But but I really think for me, I think the the third and most important way that these these problems keep arising is that actually I think that the world is really biased and really unfair. Um, and I think that actually what you end up seeing over and over again is that technology doesn't remove structural inequalities. It just mirrors them or exacerbates them. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, I think that, um, well, I think that actually fairness and, and unbiased as it were, isn't this finish line that you get to cross? I don't think that you get to say, hey, everyone, well done. We did diversity inclusion. Good for <laughs> us. Like, gold star. You don't, I don't think you get to do that. No. I think that you have to be prepared to accept that this is a process that will never reach a conclusion. And you have to be prepared to continually hunt for um, bias in yourself and in your own organisations and continually be prepared to have the intellectual humility to go out and, and address it wherever it arises. Yeah, and I think, I that's, think that's so right. crucial in big organisations mm. now have specific roles, leadership roles and posts and directors of diversity inclusion, because this isn't, you know, just a, a mission statement for the next 12 months. This is long term goals. Right. So. <laughs> In, in that space then, so my job at the moment, or I've taken it upon myself to rewrite the GCSE math specification, right? And, and really dissecting the papers, because like you say, I can't as a white woman write a maths paper, not that it's my job to, but when I'm analysing them, um, I can't, I'm not representative of everybody, every person, every student that might be reading that paper, right? So... I've been spending a lot of time in recent months completing my MBA, wanting to change things, wanting everyone that opens that paper to feel included and recognised and just researching the sustainability um, because we've got a third of students, a third of 15, 16 year olds every year do not pass uh, as a standard pass this maths qualification uh, at this grade grade four and I've dug deeper into the differences in the way that the exam boards are presenting these questions and papers and there's you know that there are different nuances that are, that are arising and, and why is that exam board more successful than the other so the language used as well is always key and I know that we're trying to build more resilient better problem solvers but sometimes when you're just trying to test the maths <laughs> do we need all of the language that goes around it do we is is it important especially that third who mm -hmm. find it difficult to access the question in the first place can mm -hmm. get lost in the words so the language used in exam papers needs to reflect the type of learner that it's aimed at so what would your advice be either just to me on someone that's working on this or to teachers mm -hmm. that are trying to you know get these students the confidence to access these papers how do we how do we use writers hannah to ensure that everyone feels included what do you think mm -hmm. the next set of papers should mm -hmm. should be like Oh man, what an amazing question. Okay, <laughs> so I think that the um, 
there's um, there's a Nobel Prize winning economist called Danny Kahneman, and he has this phrase where he says people have a habit habit of taking a really difficult question and swapping it for an easy one without noticing that they've made the substitution. And the role of exam papers is to test the mathematical ability of a student and to ensure that they've reached a required standard. Of course it is. But by virtue of the fact that it has to be an exam paper, it has to be a question that they haven't seen before, you have no choice but to translate, you know, that difficult question of how good are you at math? How much do you know? How, you know, how, what's your prowess like? You have to end up putting it quite literally in the form of an easier question. And I think that sometimes when you make that little swap, when you go between the thing you really care about and the thing that you can possibly measure, you're always essentially going to be using a bit of a proxy. There's always going to be a gap somewhere between the two. And so I think that sometimes you can end up inadvertently measuring something else altogether. So I'm reminded in the way hearing you talk about um, these papers and the, and the, um, the people who don't uh, achieve a pass, I'm reminded by, uh, I was having a chat with a professor the other day and he was talking about, um, he was talking about Cambridge's uh, maths exams, right? And he was saying that they were very proud of the fact that they had, I can't remember the numbers, but a certain number of male and female um, entrants. And then he was saying that he looked at the number of firsts that are handed out by the end of the process. And while the women had been doing pretty well in the entry um, entry level, by the time it got to the end, it was almost laughable how few women achieved firsts. And the question is, is it because of ability? And I fundamentally don't believe that it would be. Um, is it because of, I don't know, attitude? Is it, what, it, like, what is it about? You dig into a bit more about what it is that they test or the ways in which they test. And in Cambridge, um, there is a, a, an enormous amount. I mean, there's so many different things I could say here, but an enormous amount of your entire degree comes down to your performance in one single week. Right. Right at the end, one single week. Now, it. I've never seen a clearer example of a timetable that is designed for the male body than that, right? Because if you're, you happen to have your period that week, right? What, what happens then? You know, if you are, if you are, that is so obviously designed for somebody who has a 24 hour cycle rather than a, than a 28 day cycle. Like what the heck, like what the hell is that about? But then you add in the fact that actually to achieve well in that kind of environment, you need to be bold, you need to be brash, you need to make yourself known, you need to all of these things. And it's like, hang on a second, are you actually testing the yeah. mathematical ability here? Or are you are you testing a very sort of male version of like yeah. mathematical ability? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that's it for me, is that I think you always have to remember it's very easy to get sidetracked by well this is the system and look at these marks and that's what they got and therefore that's it and think that there is a one-to-one mapping between what you are measuring and what you care about but I think that really ultimately you have to acknowledge and come to terms with the fact that it is never ever 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 a one-to-one mapping ever it is it's never it's it's absolutely not it is a proxy yeah, and, yeah. and and I think losing sight of that is where some of these problems arise. And I think that loss of sight is so key because like the Nikon camera, like those, you know, the, the products that have just missed, you know, testing, 
there are there have been so many occasions of thoughtless omissions in these papers uh, in examination writing and it's not by the fault of the examiners it's just it's just not on the radar it's just not been picked up before it gets there i remember back in 2018 um there was a question uh, about going to the theater mm. and students were asked in a gcse paper both at foundation at higher about the cost of theater tickets in the circle uh, and the stalls you can imagine the proportion of students that started pi r squaring or pi ding because they'd never heard of circle seats and that's that's just the examiners trying to make it real life contextual but not everyone has the luxury of being oh, able to oh afford theatre tickets especially at the age of 15 like how many 15 year olds have bought tickets <laughs> at the theatre and i it's what you know i could share hundreds of these stories yeah. but but I you almost ra rather than kind of you know castrate your students for being so silly yeah. you kind of then think hank this is not their fault like they're just under a high pressured situation where they've just seen the word circle freaked out and started working out anything that uses pi um but yeah it's just it's those omissions and you're right i think um I get it. I understand that we need to create more diverse papers, include varieties of topics, represent more diverse names, gender fluid names, neutral names, you know, trying to maybe remove the context to not make that question more difficult than it needs to be. But the problem we're seeing every year is the awkwardness where it's like it's really obvious that the, the diversity is trying to be shoehorned in. Um, so the, the question here is, you know how how do we win this is like catch 22 situation we're trying to make the papers more diverse but then you know how how does it become normal like we said earlier it's always going to be changing it's always going to be something we need to keep on top of mm -hmm. so how do we not make it so obvious <laughs> I think that's a really good question but I also just think that just by doing it more you know yeah. I think yes. that if you uh, like me really fundamentally believe that this is this is you know the right thing for everyone then I think that you just have to keep going I remember Bridgerton um and I appreciate that's a bit of a, a curveball to, like throw this, <laughs> to throw this in but I but I really I thought there was something really remarkable about that um that show because it was I know that there was like lots of people kind of scandalized at the idea that you would have, you know, a, a, a cast um, of characters that didn't re reflect the ethnicity of the period in which um, in which it was set. But I think the thing that I really loved about it, really loved about it, was that at no point was somebody's ethnicity part of the story ever. Nice. And like yeah the first episode it's like oh okay all right interesting kind of looks very different to anything that you've seen before but then you just get over it yeah, you just yeah. get over it and it just is normal because it becomes the norm like the no pain no gain if we don't push people through these pain pain barriers that they seem to be feeling at reading such an uncomfortable question like we're never going to gain anything we're never never going to get anywhere and challenge those perceptions I think also the other thing that I really thought worked really well about Bridgerton actually was that it was um, it wasn't like okay here is 
uh like the black family and yeah. here you know it was like actually everybody was all in together it was all integrated all in together yeah completely yeah, yeah it was and, very and i think actually um maybe that is one of the ways in which we can make this less uncomfortable is that it doesn't feel like you have a question uh, an indian question right and like then a sort of a, a Ghanaian question right or whatever yeah. it's like actually everything is all in together yeah, exactly. which is what happens in schools, for goodness sake. So we know this this whole it's not one problem. This whole kind of problems, these problems that, mm. um, you know, that there's no one solution. It's not going to be fixed overnight in one fell swoop or strategy. It's definitely this rock that needs chipping away at um, over time. So the, the, one of the last questions to ask with our audience of teachers are what strategies can the teachers, so there'll be teachers listening to this on their way into the classroom today, mm. what can they do today to help uh, be, you know, act as a fellow rock breaker what can they what can they do to their students so I think it's really about um looking at your own I think it's like right acknowledge that we're all biased step one and then frame it that you are looking for the ways in which you are biased not that you are trying to decide whether you are or not um I think it is um about looking at your own practices and seeing if there is a way in which you are unintentionally um, excluding people or prioritizing some people over others, whether it's like, you know, a slightly noisier kid or, uh, you know, I don't know, there's all kinds of different ways in which in which you you may be. But I think it's about just looking out for that. One of the big things I think that has happened, and I've noticed the difference in the past few years, has been we've spoken as a nation or, you know, even as a society about how often men interrupt women. Right. Over and over again, it's been it's been mentioned. And what it means now is that when somebody interrupts me, I feel that I have the power to say, don't interrupt me. Because I know that society is with me, that that's not something that should be happening. Um, and I think that um, I think that just it's about that, right? It's like it's the same things over and over again. It's about looking for the very small ways in which people feel marginalised that are so normal that actually we they're all just completely invisible to us. And I think it's about you know committing to looking for those and to minimising them as much as possible. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's looking inwards reflecting upon your practice reflecting upon what you say and you know the teachers are 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 taught that as part of their teacher training to be a reflective practitioner mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know after not so much every lesson maybe because you go straight into the next one but at the end of the day at the end of the week at the end of the term reflect build change mm-hmm. go again mm-hmm. because you would never you know you never think you're perfect you've never got it right so you're always trying to better what you've done previously so I think having that angle as well not just about the maths or the the you know the the teaching itself but the the way that you're delivering it and, and that experience for for those children in your classroom oh, okay I cannot thank you enough time is running out um <laughs> I cannot you know, we've sparked so many and continued these conversations that we definitely need to champion. And like we've said, we've all got a responsibility to ensure that those those students 
college, uni, school, that they these teachers have contact with like every single day, feel that they do belong in that space of mathematics. Uh, I've often felt that I shouldn't belong, you know, sat as a female in a lecture theatre full of men and we've all had that experience of feeling that we shouldn't be there. Um, so we need to make sure that it's you know, it doesn't matter gender identity, race, religion, social backgrounds. Um, I really do hope that we've sparked some conversations in the staff rooms of the schools across the country and and across the world as well. Our international schools will listen to this. Um, I've just had a great blast. I've had a, an absolute blast chatting to you and I'm sure we could talk more. So thank you so much again for your time, Hannah. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. What an absolute delight to talk to <laughs> So from all of us here in the Pearson Maths team, please do have a wonderful start to your new school year and feel free to contact us at Emporium Maths if there's anything you need to get that year off to a good start. And until the next episode of The Right Angle, please do take very good care of yourselves.